This is Coach Devin Simler from Columbia Central Baseball. You are listening to 101.7 WKOM in Columbia, Tennessee. You're listening to Bulletproof Estate Planning, the show where you gain clarity and understanding about such things as last will and testament, the probate process, trusts, and how not to lose everything you own to the high cost of the nursing home. Now here's your host, Estate Plan Stan. Hey, good day to you. Good day to you on this July the 1st, 2023. Can you believe it? 1st of July, halfway through 2023. You are listening to Bulletproof Estate Planning with your host, Estate Plan Stan. I am Stan Prochowski with Prochowski Estate Law, Prochowski Elder Law, located on the square in beautiful downtown Pulaski, Tennessee. Bulletproof Estate Planning is the show where we talk about all things estate planning. I often say if it has anything to do with estate planning, we'll get to it sooner or later on this show. We talk about last wills and testaments. We talk about trust, both revocable trust and uh, uh, irrevocable trust, uh, special needs trust, asset protection trust, and we also discuss 10-care planning, you know, both pre-planning and crisis planning, which is sort of where we're going to pick up again tonight. So, As always, I encourage questions. I mean, this show is all about education on what your options are. So if you have a question, you can call me at 931-363-7222, or you can go to my website. My website is estateplanstan.com. That's E-S-T-A-T-E-P-L-A-N-S-T-A-N.com, estateplan.com. There you can find my email. You can ask your question that way, or you can get the phone number. I always enjoy doing this show here on Front Porch Radio, WKOM 101.7 out of Columbia, Tennessee. And I want you to keep in mind that all these episodes, all my episodes of Bulletproof Estate Planning are posted as podcasts on the WKOM website. So if you ever miss one or you just want to go back and review a topic, it's all there for you to do so. All right. So let's see where we're at. Um, Let's just go over a few things in review. And that is, I have just discussed last two Sunday nights in detail. We did what we call a deep dive into this five-year look-back rule. And we, we picked it apart. We unfolded it pretty good. And the reason I did is because we're about to make this transition into what I call crisis planning. Now, remember, crisis planning is when somebody's already in care. Okay, pre-planning, you know, we spent a couple of weeks on the income-only asset protection trust, and we said that is a pre-planning tool. And pre-planning means, okay, here's, here's an example I always use. Pre-planning is when you and your wife come into my office and you say, gee, Stan, we've been working all our lives. We've accumulated our lifetime of stuff, our lifetime of wealth. We've got everything we own. And, you know, just in case, you know, nobody's sick yet or anything, but just in case one of us goes into long-term care, We kind of don't want to lose everything to the cost of that because it's very expensive. Okay, that's pre-planning. You're not there. You're not in the home. You're not in care. And you don't seem to be knocking on the door or anticipating it. Okay? Then crisis is like the opposite. Crisis is when you come into my office and say, gee, Stan, my wife just got admitted to the nursing home. Looks like she's going to be there for a while. Uh, How do we keep from losing everything we've earned and made all our lives? Okay, so you see the difference. Crisis means somebody's already there. And that's just 
a term I use. It's sort of used throughout the industry. It doesn't necessarily. It doesn't mean to imply bad news, but I mean it is kind of, you know, a, a shocker when somebody's there and they get sticker shock on what it's going to cost to be there. So that's what we're transitioning from this pre-planning into crisis planning. And I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to be on this for a couple of weeks. Uh, we don't cover crisis planning in a one-hour show. We are going to be here for three, four, maybe even five, because there's a lot of different options you can do in crisis planning, a lot of things you can do, uh, different strategies, and we're going to go over them all. We're going to pick them apart. And, you know, so you know what, what you can do. So we're... So what I was saying before is I, I spent the last two weeks talking about this five-year look-back rule because that is integral in everything we do. Whenever we're doing anything, whether it's pre-planning or crisis planning, that is always looming in the background. How to, how to avoid the negative effects of that. Now, some of the strategies we use actually invoke the five-year rule intentionally, on purpose, which people sometimes have a hard time understanding why you would do that. But once you understand the, the strategy, you can see that there's a way we can make the five-year period work for us instead of always against us. Uh, so that's why I wanted to go over the five-year look-back rule and just thrash that baby out like we did in the last two episodes and just get it down, get it down pat, second nature to us. We're always worried about it. Now, a question that came up from last week on the five-year rule I want to bring up because I, one of the fundamental con concepts of the five-year look-back rule is it only applies to gifts, or it only applies to things you give away, or, or like the statute says, uncompensated transfers, a divestment. When you give something away for less than what it's worth, that's the only thing that applies to that. Somebody called me and said, look, my wife and I, you know, we're, we're, we're advanced years, uh, both of our hells are not very good. You know, we're thinking about selling the house, but we're afraid if we do, that's going to that's going to get us on the look back period. And the answer is absolutely not, because when you sell a house, what do you get for it? Well, you get the sale price. As long as the sale price is the fair market value, and as far as ten care is concerned, that's the value that's on the tax card, the tax appraised value. You've sold it for fair market value. The look back rule has nothing to do with compensated transfers. It only deals with gifts, things you give away. Because, like I said before, many people feel like, well, if they're just going to get everything, why don't I? Why can't I just give it all away? Okay, and that's where. So don't make the mistake. Uh, the only thing that look back rule is looking for is stuff that you are giving away. So we talked about that for the last two weeks because I think you need to know that because every one of these strategies will involve that five year look back rule in some respect, and we always want to be aware of it. And of course, the other thing which will get thrashed out as we move forward. When you're in crisis mode, we also want to worry about the Ten Care Estate Recovery Act. That's when they can come back around after death and take anything that's left in your probate estate. Now, what we do in my office is we try to make sure there's nothing in your probate estate for Ten Care Estate Recovery to recover from. But, you know, they'll let you exempt your home, and then that sort is there at death, and they can come and take it, and they will. So that's where we're moving into this concept of crisis planning. Now, I want to talk about how it kind of starts, what it kind of looks like, and you know the, some of the initial calculations that are involved. But first, let me tell you this. The rules are very different if you are a married person or if you are a single person. So, I mean, that's kind of obvious. Uh, if you go in and you're married, uh, you know, one of you needs care, one of you does not, okay? 
And, you know, if one of you passes away and now you're the only person, you're the survivor of this marriage, and you go in, well, now you're a single person, okay? Or you could be just single in the first place, you know what I mean? So it's, that's pretty elementary, whether you're single or married. But the rules are different. If you go in and you are married at the time, you know, the rules are pretty much different than they are when you're single. So we'll talk about both of them as we advance through this topic. But I'm going to start off with married couple. Because that's probably what we see most of the time, more than half anyway. But, uh, you know, because there's a lot of neat things we can do for that. So let's get some terminology straight, okay? Well, I'm going to use some terms, you might, or you might hear them. I, I use some substitute terms that I think are a little clearer and easier to understand. But when we're talking about a married couple, let's say one of you needs to go into the nursing home, okay? So let's put the husband in the nursing home. If the husband's in the nursing home, he is what we call, or what TenCare calls, the institutionalized spouse. Kind of a big word. Um, I like to call that person the sick spouse. Okay? And the, the wife at home who's not in care or doesn't need care, she's referred to as the community spouse. Sometimes I'll refer to that as the healthy spouse. I think those are easy. Sick spouse and healthy spouse are easy terms to remember who's who. Institutionalized and community Maybe not so much so, but those are the, those are the that's the terminology out of the statute, and of course, if we're talking about the institutionalized spouse and filing for ten care, sometimes our, that person is referred to as the applicant. That's the person applying for ten care. All right, so I'll try to keep them consistent. But when you hear community spouse, that's the one at home that doesn't need care, and institutionalized spouse or sick spouse is the one that actually is in care and the person we're dealing with. All right, so we got some de- terms defined. So let's walk forward a little bit and think and think about how does this sort of begin? Because, you know, nobody ever packs a suitcase and takes grandma down to the nursing home and says, hey, here's grandma. We think she belongs. To, we think she needs to be here. So here you go. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure grandma would not appreciate that. But nonetheless, that's not how it happens. Uh, uh, people end up there by usually the same set of facts. And they usually looks like this. So, you know, if you've been in crisis or you've been here, just bear with me or feel free to give me a call or send me an email about what your ter- terms and circumstances, what how that worked out for you. Uh, maybe it's something I can use on the show to help educate other people. Uh, more than welcome to hear those. So here's how it usually works. You know, you got, you got grandma and grandpa, and they're married. And grandma falls down, breaks her hip, breaks her leg, I don't know, but gets hurt, accident of some kind, right? Could be a car wreck. I mean, it could be something else, but uh, she falls and hurts herself. And she goes to the hospital. All right. Now, you go to the hospital with a broken leg or a broken hip, that is an insurable event, okay? So your Medicare is going to pay for that. Now, typically what happens is, let's just say it's a broken hip, because that's kind of an easy thing for everybody to visualize. But it can be any kind of accident. You know, I've seen you know heart damage. I've seen uh, physical damage, brain damage, uh, in car wrecks, uh, or just some old age-related things like dementia. But it can be anything. Now, when you, when this happens, it's referred to as a spell of illness, and that's what Medicare calls it because that's your insurance company. If you're 65 and older, and if you're listening to me, that you probably are, uh, which is what we deal with mostly. But, uh, you know, this is a spell of illness. And so you, grandma falls and breaks her hip and she goes to the emergency room. 
And they decide either they're going to fix her hip or maybe even replace it. Either way, it's a surgical procedure. And so they do. Let's just say they replace the hip. That's pretty big these days. And they, they put in an, an artificial hip. Well, she's in a hospital for two days, maybe three. I don't know, somewhere around there. And then what they do is they will discharge her to a long-term care facility. Now, I want you to pay attention to me here for the next couple of minutes because this is important. Just because, just because grandma gets discharged to a long-term care facility does not mean she is in long-term care. Okay? What they are doing is they are discharging her there to rehabilitate. So the broken hip is a good example of this because a broken hip doesn't keep you in long-term care for the rest of your life. Now, it can, and I've seen that happen. But typically, you get your new hip, and they send you, and you got to rehabilitate. I mean, you got to learn to walk on this new hip, and that doesn't happen overnight. So you have to get your gait back because, you know, you got, if you don't walk right, it's going to screw up your back. It's going to screw up your neck. And, you know, if you're limping or you're, you're, you're not making a smooth stride, it's going to have collateral effect. And so you rehabilitate, you have physical therapy, and they teach you how to get your gait back and how to walk on with this brand new hip, right? And so that's what we're talking about, rehabilitate. Now, if if you re- rehabilitate, say, let's take the broken hip. Grandma gets to walk and just like a champ, just like better than she was before. Well, then they just charge her and she goes home, right? No, no need to stay in long-term care. But sometimes the injury is one that keeps you there. So let's say a little bit of brain damage, like from a car wreck or something, and um, or an amputation uh, where you're wheelchair bound. And so... You know, you still go through the rehabil- the surgery and then the rehabilitation because the rehabilitation really determines the level of care that you're going to need, whether you need to stay there or not. So eventually we're going to be talking about people who end up staying there. But I'm talking about the, how the Medicare works because this is something you need to know and understand. So let's take something different. Let's say it's a brain injury. And the person, after, the, after you get to the, the rehabilitation, it, the determination is going to be made that they're going to stay there. So it works like this. You go to the hospital. They do whatever they think is necessary, surgery or whatever. And then they discharge you to the facility to rehabilitate. You know, and the reason they do that is when you rehabilitate in a hospital, it's probably thousands of dollars a day. To rehabilitate in a nursing home is hundreds of dollars a day. So it's a little bit cheaper. But, you know, now that you're in, in the nursing home, uh, the Medicare is going to pay for that. TenCare, or Medicaid, hasn't entered the picture yet. And so let's get this straight. Medicare has some rules about how they're going to pay for rehabilitation. And the way they do that is they're going to pay for the first 20 days that you're there, 100%. Medicare is going to pay 100%. And now they will pay for days after 20, but they will pay it at a split. So day 21, if you, you know, if they determine you need to stay there longer than 20 days, day 21 will be paid for at an 80-20 split, where Medicare plays 80%, you pay 20%. Now, for most people by far, their supplement to Part B, because Part B won't pay that 20%, but their supplement will. So, from the person's standpoint, they're still not out of pocket anything. Even though they're responsible for that 20%, their Medicaid, Medicare Part B is paying the 80. Their supplement is typically paying the 20. So we're not bleeding to death financially yet. 
Now, you'll often hear people talk about their 100 days. So, so Grandma's in the hospital, but her 100 days doesn't run up until the end of September. I, this 100 days is something you need to be aware of because it is not automatic, 100 days. It is, the statute says they, Medicare can pay up to 100 days. That 100 days, when you hear it, that is an upside cap, meaning they will absolutely, positively, under no circumstances, pay for day 101. That is the top level of what they will pay, and it's up to, up to 100 days, which means Medicare determines how long. Now, how does Medicare know? <laughs> how does Medicare know how long it's going to take you to re- rehabilitate? Well, let's talk about it for a second. They're going to communicate with the hospital, and they have certain rules. And you know, I don't have time to go over all of them, but they're basically like this. If the hospital reports that you are rehabilitating and making progress, they'll continue to pay. If the, if the hospital reports that you have, like, plateaued, let's say you've been there for 35, 40 days, you've been making progress all these days, now for the last five days or so, you hit a plateau. In other words, you haven't gotten any better, but you haven't gotten any worse either. Now, if the hospital determines that, look, this person plateaued out, it's been that way for a week, in our opinion, it's probably as good as it's going to get because they're doing everything so it's not like we're not trying anything. It's just the result of the, the injury and the rehabilitation. This is the best it's going to be. If that's the case, then there's no more rehabilitation involved, right? And so Medicare will give you a notice that they're terminating. So it could be le- and that could be less than 100 days. Also, I get reports from people that if you refuse physical therapy two times, just two times, they will drop you like a hot rock because you're there to rehabilitate. And if you don't do the PT, they're not going to pay for it. And I've also heard some horror stories where, you know, somebody will come into the, the, the bedroom at the hospital and say, okay, dear, okay, Ann Gertrude, it's time for your physical therapy. And Ann Gertrude says, you know what, I'm not feeling very good today. I've been throwing up. I'm woozy. I just don't think I can do my physical therapy today. They say, okay, hon, that's fine. And they walk out and they go put down on the record, refused PT. I mean, I don't know if they do that all the time, but I know for a couple of facts, a couple of times they've actually done that for sure. And that's kind of, I don't know, deceptive? I don't know. But you have refused PT. Maybe they're just taking it in a strict strict liability and strict sense of the word. But either way, uh, if you're not rehabilitating, they're not going to pay. So don't, get, don't think this 100 days is automatic because when they terminate it, they will send you a letter. And that letter will give you typically 14 days notice, and you'll get the letter on day number four. So you're down to 10 days when you get it. So that's how that works. But that pre-creates a really good opportunity for us for crisis planning if the diagnosis means you're going to be there for a long time or for for the rest of your life. This is an opportunity to put this time to good use. Uh, So uh, again, let me, you know, the first 20 days, Medicare is going to pay 100% as long as you're rehabilitating. And as long as you are rehabilitating, they will pay 80% for day 21 through day 100. And you you're, you pay the 20% or your supplement does. But they absolutely would cut you off, no matter where you are in rehabilitation, at 100 days. All right, listen, we are coming up on break number one. So stay with me here on Bulletproof Estate Planning. Uh, I am your host, Estate Plan Stan. And when we get back, we will talk more about this concept of crisis planning.
Hi, I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee, on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. Hello, I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. You may have heard our previous commercials about compression hosiery that we carry at Holland's Pharmacy. Well, we've recently expanded into a full line of knee braces, back, wrist, ankle, and other support wear. We will gladly help you get just the right fit for these items and, of course, special order items to ensure the proper fit. Come see us at Holland's Pharmacy, 1608 Hatcher Lane, or call us at 931-388-4233. 388-4233. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. By now, you all know about Don, our service truck guy. Well, let me tell you about another member of our service team, and that's Mike Ashley. He's the guy you'll talk to when you call the office. Just call and talk to Mike one time at 931-540-0919, and you'll see why we're lucky to have him here at the Garbage Man. Thanks, Mike, for all you do to keep the Garbage Man first in service. That's 931-540-0919. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. If your car was damaged in an auto accident, chances are you'd fix the car. Why wouldn't you give that same attention to yourself? Untreated whiplash injuries of the spinal column may lead to conditions such as headaches, numbness in the arms, neck and back pain. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating such injuries from an auto accident. Accident consultations are free. Call me painfree.com or call 615-551-9224. Let's face it, the world is constantly changing and it is now more important than ever to take care of those who you trust with your business every day. Large and even international competition has made it increasingly difficult to keep your best talent. With Caledonian Financial's local business plan to help, you can give your employees a business package that is competitive and effective for everyone. I'm Thomas Sneed with Caledonian Financial here in downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Farmer Johnny here, Taylor Family Farm. I want to give you all a little look-see. We raise 100% non-GMO, grass-fed beef, pasture chicken, and pork on our family farm. Everything that we grow is raised with love and care to ensure the highest quality and nutrition for our family and customers. You can shop online at taylorfamilyfarmtn.com or visit our farm store in person at Etheridge, Tennessee at 301 Dave Reisner Road. That's taylorfamilyfarmtn.com for more information. This is Terry Wilcox, a.k.a. The Chicken Man, a.k.a. T-Willie, and you're listening to 101.7 FM WKOM, Columbia, Tennessee. All right. Hey, well, thank thank you for that song, The Birds, Turn, Turn, Turn. That's my theme song. Welcome back. Welcome back from the break. You're listening to Bulletproof Estate Planning. I am your host, Estate Plan Stan. And we're going to pick up where we left off before the break, which was, uh, you know, we talked about this concept of Medicare 
paying for a period of rehabilitation. And we made clear that this period of rehabilitation is not, I repeat, is not long-term care. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, well, mom was in a, in a nursing home. But yeah, that, that still is not long-term care. That's the long-term care we're talking about is when you're going to be there after the 100 days and you're going to be there for an extended period of time, if not the rest of their life. So that's the long-term care we're worried about. That's what Medicaid will pay for, not Medicare. Now, point I'm trying to make with all this, first of all, you need to understand how it works. And the most important thing you need to understand is that 100 days is not automatic. Although, I will say, sometimes, most of the time they seem to be pretty generous with it. So, you know, trying to cut costs everywhere across the board, uh, that's one where they seem to kind of dish out that 100 days. Sometimes it surprises me. But I'm going to tell you now why that's good. If that happens, that's a big advantage for us because that is time. Like I said, you're not paying anything. You, the insured, or your family member is not paying anything because Medicare is paying all of it for 20 days. And for the next potential 80 days, they're paying 80%. But 99.9% .9 of people who buy a supplement for their Medicare, that will pay that 20%. So you are you are not out of pocket, okay, anything while the Medicare thing. Now, that creates a window of up to 100 days, right? Depends on what Medicare decides, but it's a window where we can get ready. Now, suppose some, somewhere along the line, you know, like I said, if it's like example one that I gave and you have a broken hip and you're rehabilitating fine and you're starting to walk good, you're not going to be there, okay? You're going to come home. And so there's no reason to get prepared for long-term care. But if you're there and you've got dementia and you've and now you your accident has made you wheelchair-bound or it's a stroke and you've rehabilitated some, but you're still going to need some level of care, you're going to need help with a couple of what they call the ADLs, the Activities of Daily Living, and you're going to stay there. Now, if we know that ahead of time, and usually we do, I mean, you can tell. People come to me and say, Ann Gertrude's in the nurse, you know, she's in the rehabilitation phase. Uh, there's no way they're going to send her home because of her issues. So if we know that's where we're headed, we now have this window of opportunity where we can work and get prepared to file a 10-care application and ask for 10-care benefits to pay for the long-term care part of it. And we can do so without the stress of knowing that we are private paying and bleeding to death financially at $8,500 a month, right? That is an opportunity. That is a window of opportunity. So I've had it happen both ways. I've had people come to me and say, hey, my wife is in a nursing home. She just got put in there last week. Uh, I'm sure you know, she's got Alzheimer's pretty bad, and I'm sure they're just going to keep her. And so we get to it. We got, I don't know when they're going to pull the plug, but, you know, it's usually more than 20 days. And it's a lot of times less than 100, but, you know, it's a month or two. And that gives us plenty of time because when we prepare a 10-care application and prepare some of the strategies I'm going to talk about in the next couple of weeks, we don't do it overnight. I mean, it takes a couple of weeks. I'm going to say it takes anywhere from two to three, up to five to six weeks, depending on how rapidly we can gather the documentation, the paperwork. I mean, we'll talk about that on one of these shows, but the stuff you got to produce for this application is voluminous. Voluminous means a boatload, okay? Well, I can think of a couple other choice ways to say that, but I am on radio. So uh, it's a lot. It's a whole lot of stuff. I mean, typical stuff is like, you know, you can say, uh, I want to see the marriage certificate, and I want to see your husband's death certificate. Well, her husband died 
my husband died 20 years ago. Well, we want to make sure you were married. We want to make sure he's gone. And we do, also, we want to make sure he didn't have a claim on TenCare. So everything they ask for, or a lot of things they ask for, it seems a little silly, but they have a reason for asking for it, and we have to produce it. I mean, we don't have the option to say, I don't think you need that, so I'm not going to send it. As soon as you do that, they're going to deny you for failure to respond to an informational request. So we're playing in their sandbox. We've got to follow their rules. So it takes a lot of get stuff to get together. Now, when people come in and tell me, okay, my spouse is in the nursing home just last week, and let's get started, that puts us in grand position. As opposed to somebody that comes to me and says, hey, my mom's in the nursing home. We just got a letter from Medicare and they're going to terminate their Medicare payments Tuesday. Okay? That's not as good a position to be because we can't be ready by Tuesday. It's just not that quick. Now, some of the most simplest strategies, maybe, if we hustle. But, you know, the application's 10 pages long. And those answers, although you look, you, want, you may take the application and look at it. And the answers, you can say, well, these aren't difficult questions. The answers are straightforward. Maybe so. That's not the problem. The problem is what they do with the answer. So you might say, well, this is a simple thing to answer. And you answer it, and what they do with that answer is going to result in the denial. Okay. So what we want to do is we want to change things around and change the answer, not do anything we're not supposed to do. We want to change the answer around to be the right answer so that when they do what they do with answers, it is in that person's favor and not to their detriment. So, you know, you know, if you then we're stuck private paying for a while while we, you know, we can hustle and go as fast as we can, but some things don't go fast. Here's a couple good examples. You know, if somebody's got some money in an IRA that we have to cash out. Well, we have to deal with that insurance company, right? The people that have it. And here's how insurance companies work. Or if it's a regular annuity, I mean, that we need to cash out and turn it into a Medicaid compliant instrument so we can save it all, so we can keep 10 care from getting it. Uh, with the estate recovery program. Uh, so we have to change it. So here's how it works. We call them up and say, hey, listen, we want to cash this account out. They're going to say, may I speak to the applicant? And we're going to say, well, the applicant is um, incapacitated, but we have a power of attorney. Here's the son, and he's got the power of attorney for her. They're going to say, please send us the power of attorney. And we're required to look at this over. We need five to seven days to look at the power of attorney before we, we agree we'll talk to the son who's the power of attorney. And so five to seven days go by. Then there's, okay, they've looked at it, they scratched it, they sniffed it, and they're happy with the power of attorney. Now, some of them, they come back, I won't go there right now, but some they come back and say, not good enough. Some of the power of attorneys I see suck. I don't know any other way to say it. They just suck. They're a page and a half long. And they'd say, oh, we include by reference the stuff in the statute. Just not good enough. Mine have been thrashed out and mine have withstood the muster and have withstood scrutiny. And they have come out with flying colors. Mine are much longer, but they are much better. But anyway, uh, so th you know that would be an inherent delay there because now we that's a disaster there because if the person's in incapacitated, they can't do a new they can't do one of my power of attorney because they can't they lack legal capacity to sign one. So now you got to go to court and get a conservatorship, and that takes months. So anyway, um, so they, they look at it for five to seven days. Then you get them on the phone, and they say, okay, we'll talk to the guy. We recognize his power to talk for Ann Gertrude. And so he says, okay, I'm giving my authority to cash this baby out. And they'll say, okay, we'll be glad to do that. We need 10 to 14 days to cash it out. And so you got 10 to 14 days delay. 
Then they cash it out, and then you say, okay, send me the check. You'll have the check in five to seven days. I mean, we're pushing the better part of a month with when we're dealing with these insurance companies. Now, some of them a little quicker, some of them a little longer, but it's an inherent delay. So if you come to me and say, we're in the rehabilitation phase, we need to apply for 10 care, uh, one of the first questions I'm going to ask is, do we have any annuities? Do we have any qualified funds? What what do the assets look like? If it's money in a bank and we can just go to the local bank and deal with it, that's one thing. If we got something we're dealing with New York Life or uh, Nationwide or something that's an insurance company asset that's going to put us through this, we want to get started on that post pronto right away because we know there's this inherent delay that we can't control. These are third-party financial. And if you tell them, say, look, we're hurrying up and trying to get an application filed because Ann Gertrude's about to start private paying and we can't afford that. You know what they're going to say? <laughs> they're going to say, hey, I, I'm real sorry about your problem, but you know our procedure is to verify this and do everything this way, and it takes us this much time. And by the way, if you go back and read the policy that you filled out when you bought this instrument umpteen years ago, you agreed that all these were reasonable and that you would allow us to take this much time to do it. So you can't hurry them up. I've tried. Um, they don't want to hear it. Sometimes they work with you, but even the person you're talking to who can work with you can't hurry up the legal department who's approving your power of attorney. So anyway, we just live with it because we have to. So there's some delay there. So you know, if you're private paying, Man, you're stuck with, you know, if it's $8,500 a day, the average rate, I mean, $8,500 a month, the average rate around here is $285 a day. So if you're waiting, you know, every time they tell you five to 10 days and you're thinking $285 a day, that's going to make you a little bit anxious because you're bleeding to death financially. So my point being, if you know this is going to happen and you know the person's more than likely going to be there. Get this process started now while Medicare is paying. This is a tremendous window of opportunity to get the ball rolling. Now, I haven't talked about what it is we do when we get the ball rolling because I just hadn't got there yet. That's what these next couple of weeks are going to be about. But this is how it begins. And this is what it looks like. You know, somebody has an accident, goes there uh, to the hospital, gets discharged, is there trying to rehabilitate. The rehabilitation reaches an end. And it's not good enough. They still need help. And so they end up staying there. That's the long-term care that we're dealing with. Now, I want to talk, when that happens, all right, when that happens, and you want to file this 10-care application, because that's the goal. Now, if we want, when we have a married couple, like I said, the rules are different. And one of the things that happens right up front is this. When you're a married couple, let me give you some background. When you're a married couple and one of you goes into the nursing home at $8,500 a month, the healthy spouse at home, of course, I'm sure is worried about their spouse in the nursing home and their care. But let's face it, that that spouse that's at home, the community spouse, is worried about what is going to happen to me when this black hole of expenses, you know, this in the nursing home sucks up all our savings, all our liquid money. What, what do I have to live off of? I mean, I got my Social Security that comes in every every month, but that's you know that's not much. Certainly not enough to live on, or barely enough to live on. So what what's going to happen to me? And that is a valid concern. And you know, back in the eighties and the sixties, when uh, the Medicaid Act came out, 
Then later in the 80s, they came up with this concept called the spousal impoverishment rules. Again, we're only talking about married people, thus the name spousal. So spousal impoverishment rules. And what they're designed to do is cure the problem I just explained to you. If you are a healthy spouse at home and your spouse is the institutionalized spouse and they are in the nursing home and you are in a private pay situation and $8,500 a month is just going to clean you out over time, we have, they have created, our legislature has created rules, the spousal impoverishment rules, which allow us to keep a certain amount of money with the healthy spouse so that she may, can maintain a level of, of living, okay? A, a certain amount of wherewithal to, to pretty much try to fill the shoes of the standard of living she had before the other one went in. Now, there are numbers that are, that are, that are given to us that the 10 Care Act makes and changes from time to time, but they we're given how much money that person's allowed to have. And so I'm going to go over those. Now, these are some numbers. So if you want to write them down, that's fine. I know when things are number heavy on the radio, it gets hard, but uh, let's just, let's just do the best we can. So we, we have something called the, the <clears throat> community spouse resource allowance. Okay. Remember the community spouse is the one that's at home does not need care, right? She's the one, I say she, but uh, that's the one that's uh, worried that there's going to be nothing left for them to live off of. So the Community Spouse Resource Allowance, we uh, here in Tennessee, we are what we call a range state or a minimum maximum state. We have a minimum Community Spouse Resource Allowance and we have a maximum Community Spouse Resource Allowance. So sometimes we call this Community Spouse Resource Allowance the CSRA, and we, you'll hear it referred to as the CESRA, CSRA. That's what it stands for. So if you hear me say that, uh, Community Spouse Resource Allowance is a mouthful. So the CESRA. So we, uh, and here's the numbers. The, the minimum is $29,724. That's as of January of this year, 2020, 2023. The maximum is 148620 That's a pretty big range, right? It's $120,000 worth of range. So it works like this. If And I'm going to tell you how we calculate this resource allowance. But the way we calculate it is once we calculate it, if the spouse's money is below, and I'll revisit this when we get to it, when the spouse's money is below $29,000, well, we take more from the institutionalized spouse to get her to the minimum, $29,724. If it's between those two, well, then that's what she gets, you know. But if it's over the $148,620, if it's over that, she only gets to keep the 148620 So we are a minimum maximum state or a range state, and that's how they're, what they're going to do. Now, what is this community spouse resource allowance? Well, first of all, let's talk about when they do this. <laughs> I know it's involved. Stay with me. Um, it's complicated. It's not unlearnable, but it's definitely a many-tentacled octopus in a way. I often refer to this 10-care planning as a big old spider web, and it seems like no matter where you touch it, it vibrates everywhere. Some places it vibrates very hard, and some places it vibrates very mildly, but everything seems to be affected no matter what we do. So we all always keep that in mind. 
So in order to figure out when, they, they do this calculation called the Community Spouse Resource Allowance. And you do this calculation on a specific day. That day is called the snapshot date. And you only have a snapshot date when you have a married couple. There is no such thing when you're single. That's why, remember I told you the rules are different. So I'm going to stick with the married couple. So what we're going to do is we're going to figure out what the snapshot date is. And then we're going to divide the resources between the two spouses. So let's just start with the snapshot date. And the snapshot date is defined as the first day of continuous confinement in a facility. Now, that includes hospital stays. So if, you're not, if you go to the hospital on the first of the month and you're there for three days, and on the third that you're discharged from the hospital directly to a nursing home for, to rehabilitate, they tack those together. Okay, they keep going. And if you're, if, you've, if you're there, so let's say you go in on June the 1st. And on June the 3rd, you get shipped to the facility. And on June 15th, you decide to apply for 10 care. They're going to consider the snapshot date June 1st because that was the first date of a continuous 30-day confinement, including the hospital. Now, that snapshot date is important. That's the day they're going to look at all your resources. They're going to look at what were your resources on that day. And then they're going to make this calculation called the Community Spouse Resource Allowance. So, you know, that's important. And another strange thing that you got to keep aware of is your snapshot date is always the same. So let's say you go in the hospital, you're there for more than 30, or you're, you're discharged from a facility, you're there for 30 days or more, you have created your snapshot date. But let's say you never even applied for 10 care, or maybe you did and didn't qualify. Well, you know, if, if if more than 60 days go by and you have another spell of illness, you know, they'll do this all again. And let's say this time you are going to be there and so you apply, they're going to look at the snapshot date from the time before because once it's established, it is always that date. It doesn't matter if it's years later that you need to go in. Okay, that's kind of a fluke in, the, in these rules, but that is how it works. So we're always aware of that. We always ask, hey, have you ever been in a nursing home before? And if so, we need to be aware of that because that determines us. So when we come back from the next break, I'm going to talk about this CESRA, this Community Spouse Resource Allowance, and how we, how we um, calculate it. Because it's pretty easy, but it's what they do with it that's important. So uh, stay with me here on Bulletproof Estate Planning. I'm your host, Estate Plan Stan. We'll be back right after this. Did you know that 70% of Americans age 65 or older will need some form of long-term care in their lives? And even more frightening, 7 out of 10 people who go into long-term care will become completely impoverished within one year. It doesn't need to be that way. You do not need to go broke in the nursing home. Call Prochowski Estate Law to learn how you can protect your life savings and hard-earned property from the high cost of long-term care. Call me at 931-363-7222. 
Do you want to give back to an individual with disabilities and help change a life? The Guide Dog Foundation and America's Vet Dogs are seeking volunteers to help raise future guide or service dogs. Puppy raisers provide loving homes for puppies until they are old enough to begin formal training. Help raise an adorable pup into a future guide or service dog for a person who is blind, visually impaired, a veteran, or a first responder. Visit puppy.guidedog.org to learn more. That's guidedog.org. Sponsored by the Guide Dog Foundation. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hello, it's me, Terry Tillis from Tillis Jewelry. July reminds me of red, white, and blue. If you were born in July, your birthstone is the ruby, king of the precious stones, for its rarity, hardness, second only to diamonds. We have a beautiful collection from earrings to rings, modern and antique. If you were born in July, we'll take 10% off your purchase. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the drywall that somehow isn't. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Hey, this is Trip Stoltz, owner and manager of Columbia Ace Hardware. Spring is here and we are ready. We carry a full line of steel, echo, and chindawa yard equipment. We also have a great selection of grass seed, fertilizer, and garden supplies. With the most knowledgeable sales staff in southern middle Tennessee, come check us out at 112 East James Campbell Boulevard, Columbia, Tennessee. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. Hello, this is John McEwen with McEwen Group Real Estate, located at 17A Public Square in beautiful downtown Columbia. Our family has over 40 years' experience selling farms, residential, recreational, and all types of real estate here in Middle Tennessee. Check us out online at McEwenGroup.com or on Facebook and Instagram at McEwen Group, or give me a call today at 931-628-1749. McEwen Group, land is your legacy. You're listening to your local radio, 101.7 WKOM, Columbia. Hey, welcome back. Welcome back from the break. You're listening to Bulletproof Estate Planning with your host, Estate Plan Stan. All right, we're going to finish up this this leg say we're going to this oh, little tongue tied there, sorry. We are going to finish up today as we continue talking about crisis planning and this concept of a married couple and what it looks like in the beginning 
when one of the one of the spouses goes into long-term care. Now we talked about the snapshot date, okay? So they're going to figure out what your assets are. Now how do they do that? We are what they call the one half deduct a one half deduction state. But here's something you need to know. Because a lot of times people come to me and say, well, you know, my wife's fixing to go to the nursing home, so I'm going to put the house in her name. I'm sorry. Uh, My wife is going to go into the nursing home, so I'll put the house in my name only. Or I'll change a checking account or a bank account to my name only. That way, they can't, when they go after her assets, they can't get at that stuff. Um, You know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but uh, if you think that and you're listening to this show on this very day, I think we ought to count that as a blessing because I'm going to tell you, I'm going to save you a lot of panic and heartache. That is not the way it works. So what they're going to do is they're going to calculate a thing called the Community Spouse Resource Allowance, or the CESRA, and here's how they do it. They're going to take everything you own. Now, here's how they do that. They're going to take everything husband owns in his individual name, and they're going to throw it into this pot. Then they're going to take everything the wife owns in her individual name. So the husband has a bank account. It's just his. His wife has no authority. She never put a dime into it. It's his walk-around money, right? His messing around money, his Home Depot money, just whatever, hobby money. It's just his only, never been hers, only his. They're going to throw that into this marital pot. They're going to look at take anything the wife owns independently. So she's got her quilting and her sewing fund and her book club friends, whatever. Okay, you get the idea. So the the, uh, the wife has her own assets. They're going to take everything she owns and put it into this pot. Then they're going to take everything that you guys own jointly and put it into the pot. Now, a lot of married couples have been married for many years, don't have too much in the way of individual assets, but it's possible. A lot of, we see a lot of different scenarios. A good scenario is you know, maybe the wife inherits money from her mother. They like and they keep that money separate. Okay, so stuff like that. But they're going to take all of those and put them in a pot. And they're going to consider them marital assets. So you can see that if you think you're getting away with something by hurry up and deeding the house just to you, the healthy spouse, before you apply for 10 cow for the sick spouse, they're going to take what you just did. I mean, before you owned it as husband and wife, now you redeed it to just yourself. They're going to consider a collective asset between you and the wife. So you just sort of wasted the money you spent getting the deed prepared. Because you're right back to where you started from. So my point is, you're not gaining anything by changing assets to one of one or the other of you, one spouse or the other. Because when we when you go in as a married couple, they're going to calculate the CESRA. So now they got everything you own in one pot. Now let me before we get off everything you own, I want to make it clear because I see this a lot. Let's say the husband also has a joint bank account co ownership with a non spouse. So, you know, you put your kid on your bank account, right? Or your daughter or your wife does that or the two of you, okay? They're going to consider every bit of money in that account a collective asset. So let's say there's $100,000 in a bank account and the owner is dad and son and mom's in the nursing home. Well, they're going to look at that and say, there's $100,000 in there. We're going to add $100,000 to the marital funds. And you're going to say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Half of that's my son's. And the response is, it's co-ownership. How much of that husband can you get at? Well, technically, I can get at all of it, right? Because I'm, I'm an owner. How much can the son get at? All of it. So if you can get at all of it, husband, we're going to consider all of it available to the husband. And what's available to the husband is available to the wife. And it goes in the pot. 
So be careful when you think you're trying to outsmart TenCare because you got to know the rules or you're going to get your tail caught in a crack and, you know, then we've got to fix it. A lot of this stuff is fixable, but, you know, it takes extra effort to do that. So uh, that's how they calculate. Now what they're going to do is basically divide the number in two. So let's use some easy numbers. So let's say you uh, it's $200,000. We add it all up and there's exactly $200,000 here. Now this is excluding the home. The home is excluded at this point in time. It's not exempt. It's just not considered an, an available asset at this time. So uh, you got $200,000. You divide that by two and they're going to say, okay, $100,000 is allotted to the applicant, the institutionalized spouse, and the other $100,000 goes to the community spouse. Now, if it's $100,000, that's their community spouse resource allowance. So let's look at the table and see if it's below the minimum or above the maximum. So the minimum is 29724 so we're above that at 100000 And the maximum is 148620 so we're below that as the maximum. So that's what she gets, $100,000. It does not need to be modified. You know, if it was below the 29000 they would take it from the, spot, the, the uh, institutionalized spouse to get her up to the, the minimum. So that's her community spouse resource allowance. Now, they're never going to look at the community spouse again. Well, unless she goes into the long-term care, but I'm not putting that into this equation. So now they're just going to focus on the institutionalized spouse. And they're going to say, okay, you're right now you're not eligible. Okay, you have to have less than $2,000 of countable assets. And if you've got $100,000 in the bank... That, of course, money in the bank is countable. A lot of times you can think of countable as available for cost of care, right? So countable assets means it's available to you to pay for your own care. Well, if you've got money in the bank, it's certainly available. You can go write a check on it, right? So they're going to say you have 98000 too much. You can keep 2000 but so you've got 100000 so you've got 98000 too much. And so they're gonna. This is now we got to start dealing with strategy. How do we get rid of this ninety-eight thousand, or how do we change this ninety-eight thousand into a non-countable asset? But this is the division of property that you hear people talk about. This is the community spouse resource allowance. Now the community spouse, um, you know, like I said, they're never going to look at that person again. And we, there's also a similar division with income. We are an income cap state. And a minimum maintenance monthly needs allowance. We call it the MMMMR or MMMMA. Um, too many M's in that. Minimum monthly maintenance needs allowance. Uh, and, you know, if, if, if the wife, let's say the wife is at home and she doesn't have very much income, but the husband had a lot, well, we can move some of the husband's income to the wife to get her income up to the maximum monthly maintenance needs allowance, which is $3,715.50. Or we can get her up to the minimum if she's below $2,288.75. I know it's number heavy. Stay with me. You know, we have a little charts that tell us this because they change it from time to time. So so that's the CESRA. And we're getting close to being out of time. So I'm, I'm going to pick up with that next week. And like I said, we're going to be on this topic for several weeks because this crisis is what everybody wants to hear about because they don't think there's anything they can do when in actuality there are lots of options which they can do that. So look, we're about out of time. So listen, if you, if you heard if what you heard this week has piqued your interest, I'm glad about that. That's my mission. My mission is to get this message out that when it comes to estate planning, you have got options, lots of options. We're just starting those. 
So if you've got any questions about your own family circumstances, I'm more than happy to take the time to answer. So call my office at Prochowski Estate Law, Prochowski Elder Law, 931-363-7222, or go to my website at estateplanstand.com and set up one of my 15-minute phone calls. That way, my time and attention is going to be dedicated to your question. Seminar coming up is July the 29th. July the 29th at 10 o'clock at the Star Theater on the Square in Pulaski. That's 105 North 1st Street. July the 29th, Saturday at 10 o'clock, Will's Trust in the Nursing Home. So, hey, thanks for listening. I always enjoy doing this show here on Front Porch Radio, WKOM 101.7. I'll be here next Saturday night at 7 o'clock p.m. as always for the next episode of Bulletproof Estate Planning. And I am Estate Plan Stan, and I will see you next week. Murray County Volunteer Firefighters provide fire and rescue services to Murray County residents like you. I'm Savannah Madison, Public Information Officer with Murray County Fire. Our department serves over 600 square miles, and as a volunteer department, we rely on community donations to operate. You can also support by joining our department. We help you obtain the certifications to become a support member or firefighter. Learn more about making a tax-deductible donation or becoming a firefighter at murraycountyfiretn.org. That's murraycountyfiretn.org. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole bar. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high-quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. Hey, this is Derek Ransom with Ten Pin Alley, voted number one family entertainment center in Murray County. We offer 32 bowling lanes, giant arcade, laser tag, bumper cars, and a full cafe and bar menu. We also specialize in group events, kids and adult birthday parties, company parties, sports team parties, and holiday parties. We're located at 322 East James Campbell Boulevard in Columbia. Call us today at 931-381-BOWL or visit us at tenpin.com. Ten Pin Alley, it's where the good times roll. Throughout the country, buried pipelines are indicated by a pipeline right-of-way. A long, wide stretch of grass cleared of trees and marked with signs. If you have a right-of-way near your home, do not plant anything in it or dig in it. Do not install a fence or build your kids a super cool fort without first getting the pipeline operator's approval. For more on pipeline safety, visit pipesafety.org. A message from the Tennessee Gas Association, Tennessee Association of Broadcasters, and this station. Yes, 
want to say that your show is disgusting. Two white men and a white woman attacking a black man who's a Democrat. You act like a bunch of Southern disgusting human beings. You need to get off the mayor. Dude number one, Mr. Jim York. Hey, Dell, you made a comment and called me a jackass yesterday. Well, it, it, there was a uh, that was a friendly comment. Uh, that, okay, uh, but but that go ahead and, and 